Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you all here. Uh, my name is John Charcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you and uh, Latif Tors and uh, Nadia El Ali and uh, Zainab Kaya to um, discuss this uh, interesting paper, Putting Gender at the Center, the Feminist Turn in the Kurdish Political Movement. So the running order for these proceedings is that because you've all read the paper that has been pre-circulated, the idea is for uh, Nadia and Latif to uh, give you their, uh, a summary of the paper in, in, in brief order, just 10 minutes each they're going to speak for, and that leaves quite a good chunk of time for a decent Q&A and uh, a bit of a discussion. So all you have to do is, um, if you kindly silence your mobile phones, the, this proceeding is recorded and uh, it will go out on a podcast, so uh, please um, take note of that. Uh, so it's a pleasure to welcome Professor Nadia El Ali. She's uh, uh, a professor at the, uh, and, and are you directing the Center of Gender Studies at SOAS at the moment? But you were. I but was now at you're some not. Point. Okay, but she's there. based in the Center of Gender Studies at uh, SOAS, University of London. She has a very long track record of research and specialism in issues over women and gender with reference to the Middle East, especially Iraq and Egypt, and more recently uh, on, on, on Turkey and, and Kurdish issues. And she has a very long uh, string of publications that go back to work on uh, gender and, and secularism and women's movements in Egypt through to more recent work on transnationalism, Iraq, women, violence, and, and, and so on uh, in, in Iraq and, and Palestine. And, um, and, uh, and so it's a real pleasure to, to welcome her here uh, today at LSE. Um, also, it's a pleasure to welcome Latif uh, Tars. He's a um, Marie uh, Sklodowska Curie Fellow. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, sure. At a School of Oriental and African Studies, also at the University of London. And he also uh, has a long track record in research and writing uh, on the Middle East and North Africa. He's been working on legal pluralism, diaspora mobilization, transnationalism, gender, conflict and peace in both Europe and the Middle East. And he, his specialism is with reference to the, the Kurds and to Turks. So uh, it's great to have them here at LSE. We're looking forward to this research. It's especially important. Um, it's uh, the result of a very recent, sustained uh, empirical research program. So it's good to have them here. I don't know if it's the first outing, but I think it's one of the, the early uh, presentations of, the, of this research. So I also have to let you know before we begin that if there's some sort of emergency, if things become extremely heated uh, in the literal sense, then you, you can evacuate the building using the nearest staircase. Uh, do you, Sandra, where is the nearest staircase? It's, yeah, okay, it's that way. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and also I'd like to say thank you to the Middle East Center and to the government department and to Sandra Svea for doing all the organization for this event. You can also tweet about the event, which, and there's a hashtag, uh, LSE Kurds. Uh, and apart from that, it's uh, an event that's organized by the social movements and popular mobilization uh, research network. 
uh, at LSE. It's based out of the Middle East Center and uh, also the government department. I'm directing it at the moment. If you'd like to be involved in any way or you want to get our bi-weekly digests of information, everything to do with protest in the Middle East and North Africa, contentious politics, uh, then please send me an email and I'll put you on our, our list serve. And also there's a, there's a website uh, run by the Middle East Center which has uh, information about our events and the publications that we do. And of course the discussion we have here uh, today will be part of that and it goes into a podcast and it also feeds into a paper which will, will, will end up being published by the, the, this research network. So um, without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Professor Nadia Al-Ali to the microphone. Thank you. Let's welcome her. Thank you, John. You can hear me, yes, in the back. So I think that John uh, didn't tell you that there will be an exam at the end because you've all read the, the paper. Yes. Um, so what I'd like to do is just sort of contextualize uh, this working paper in the wider research that we've been involved uh, with over the last two years. So um, initially, uh, Latif and myself started to talk uh, both uh, well, you know, both of our interests sort of grew out of previous research. So, as John mentioned, Latif has been doing work on the Kurdish diaspora, Kurdish diaspora mobilization, issues around citizenship and statelessness. Um, well, my work has uh, focused more on feminist mobilizations, and I've been interested in the impact of militarism and militarization on gender norms and relations. And I, um, um, we both were sort of uh, puzzled uh, when we started talking about the gap that we found when we looked at sort of media representations of Kurdish women. So this is um, speaking about uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, where you would have these images of Kurdish women fighting ISIS in Kobani and, and elsewhere in Rojava and northern Syria and in you know, quite a sort of romantic, glorified image. But then on the other hand, you had uh, and you continue to have the criminalization of uh, the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and no connection being made with what is happening uh, in Rojava in terms of uh, female combatants uh, and the resistance against ISIS and the actual uh, struggle of uh, Kurds linked to the PKK. So this uh, contradiction, uh, you know, was of interest to both of us, and we also. Um, because uh, at the time the situation looked quite differently in, in Turkey. So we were interested to look at the intersections between peace activism in Turkey, uh, there was a sort of still prospect for peace, and feminist activism. And so we set out to do empirical research and we actually uh, engaged in research in four different sites. And in uh, Turkey we, we were did some research in Diyarbakir and Istanbul and in the diaspora in London and Berlin. And our questions really uh, sort of revolved around um, the issue of, you know, what does peace mean for women's rights activists? And we did actually in speak to both Turkish and Kurdish women's rights activists. And what does conflict mean? And so actually our first, uh, one of our sort of first publications that will be coming out is precisely on that, looking at the way that um, Turkish and Kurdish women's rights activists conceptualize 
conflict and peace in the context of the Turkish-Kurdish conflict. But then, you know, as the situation evolved politically um, in Turkey, uh, and as we sort of um, continued with our research, we started to go into different directions. And um, one important aspect of our work has been precisely this uh, relationship between nationalism and feminism, which is, of course, one of the most debated issues in sort of, you know, feminist scholarships. And you have this, you know, historically the position by sort of many Western fe uh, feminist scholars who categorically said, well, nationalism is bad for women, and they had had then had women in the context of various post-colonial struggles and liberation struggles saying, well, no, wait a minute, you cannot say that categorically. There are political spaces that are opening up. Uh, but we also know that, of course, in many nationalist and liberation struggles, um, you know, the moment that um, you, uh, the, the movement actually obtained its goals, uh, you know, women's issues were sidelined. And we also know that historically and cross-culturally, um, women were always told, well, let's first address the big issue. Let's liberate the country. Uh, you know, let's deal with the class struggle. Let's deal with, you know, exploitation. And then we will deal with women's issues. And so, you know, we wanted to see what is different about uh, the centrality or the you know, the, um, you know the, the claim that actually this, uh, the Kurdish political movement was in relation to the PKK and more widely in Turkey and also northern Syria is actually putting gender-based justice and gender-based equality um, at its center and not a secondary aim. So this really has been one of our main concerns and the paper that we are presenting to you um, today uh, really grow out of this concern. And particularly, we wanted to engage with uh, you know, this argument that, oh, it's because the leader, Abdullah Öcalan, has changed its view. Uh, that's why you know, there's a change and everyone is just following this. And really, our paper aims to make a sort of more nuanced intervention in this quite simplistic argument. <coughs> Uh, I would like to also thank to John and Sandra and Zainab, especially organizing this uh, important meeting. And the way also they, they organize, I like it as well, to sending paper. Can you hear me, sorry? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I think already you know the paper, I hope. And I'm guessing because we are just actually summarizing what is the research about and what's the paper include. But mostly we would like to make space for the discussion and uh, your uh, idea and questions. Saying that uh, women in the Middle East, especially um, under the uh, both secular and really, uh, religiously influenced uh, autocratic regime, they have suffered. And especially women from ethnic and religious minorities actually also dub suffer double. Uh, when we look at the Kurdish women's movement, to understand that uh, movement, we need to look at four different dimensions. They, uh, the four different uh, power groups they are actually struggling against. The first one is Turkish state. The state since establishment has been very autocratic and uh, gender blind, even though Kemal's ideology, one of them actually early country to give right women to vote, but gender never becomes center of the Kemalism and also Islamist ideology in Turkey. There was uh, 
some policy developments, but when we look at the implications, it didn't imply it in daily life, women's life. And, but minorities, Kurdish women, like Kurdish society and also Kurdish women and Alevi women, they also suffer more than just uh, Turkish, uh, uh, Turkish women. The second issue we need to understand is actually Turkish feminist women in Turkey. For a long time, and now still the, the, there are some shifting away Turkish feminists, they have some, some group, they have changed their mind, but uh, for a long time, they cooperate with the state perspective. They welcomed autocratic gender-blind states. And especially when this gender-blind, when it comes to minorities and minority rights, they didn't include this one part of their work. And also Kurdish uh, feminist movement for a long time, as Turkish state, how they looked down to Kurdish society and minorities, and feminist, Kurd Turkish feminist movement also looked down to Kurdish women movements and also feel them like a pitiness. Uh, describe Kurdish women's movement only based on the honor crimes or somebody need to be helped and just like this kind of things, but didn't actually uh, make any equal contact with Kurdish women's movement. The third uh, issue, the patriarchal society, we need to understand. You know, state has been very patriarchal itself, but that state has continued to be exist because of the, the power of patriarchal societies. There is a strong connection because part of my previous research, which I did in Turkey and also in diaspora, I look at the community actions, the, the, how people uh, uh, negotiate or uh, experience the legal uh, issues. And when you look at the legal cases in Turkey, if it's based off, um, when it comes to gender, and state actually discriminate. Uh, it, when you look at the outcome of state uh, court, which is Jeran uh, Belge also carried out research in Urfa around that area. Myself, later time we carry out research in Turkey and also in diaspora. State has discriminated and cooperated with the patriarchal society. And uh, tribe and that society also has taken power uh, has created a barrier for the Kurdish women to move forward. The, the fourth dimension is, it was important barrier in front of Kurdish women was, has been their own comrades, like okay. Kurdish uh, movement itself. Because Kurdish women for a long time also has been very patriarchal and main dominated a muscular uh, ideological uh, movement. Uh, Öcalan, when you look at Öcalan's 1990s writings, 1991 publication to 1999's publications, actually, you can see very, uh, yes, he was very happy to bring huge, large women into movement. He was very happy to, uh, to um, uh, women take part of the demonstration and mobilization, and he was happy actually give the example of Palestinian women struggle, but when it come to make position, he showed distrust to women. And uh, <coughs> women was seen as weak, as something can corrupt 
the liberation movement for a long time. And it, part of his writing, you can see. Uh, one of the, his quotes I was just, would like to just read. Uh, he said that one of his early 90s writing, woman is like a slave, weak, and too unoccupied and dangerous. That is, she craftily uses her own state of being pulled down in order to pull down the whole society. These are questions that we need to be careful about when we go into the process of national liberation. Don't you know that a relationship with a woman into which you were plotted is a trap? The enemy uses, uses this so well. And Öcalan continued this distrust uh, woman for a long time. Of course, they were a, the Kurdish woman for a long time was against the old patriarchal system as well. They were against tribes. They were against the relationship between tribes and uh, states. They tried to break these connections. Yes, women were escaped from the home. They come out. But then they, they become the, the not just namus of the husband or father or son anymore. They become namus of the nations, whole Kurdish nations. And actually sexuality as a taboo continued and doubled later time. Because now Kurdish women is not just responsible about their own household, they are responsible about whole nations. They represent whole nations. And I don't know, I have two more minutes. And uh, of course, after the, his arrest, especially 1999, uh, the Kurdish movement went into a very deep crisis as Öcalan. And, but also I need to point out that uh, from 1995-1996, there were individual Kurdish individual women who weren't just taking part of demonstration. They were happy. They didn't challenge for a long time, but there were some individuals. They challenged Kurdish women's that patriarchal perspective, masculine perspective. One of them was Sakina Johnson. I met with her 2012, just December, three weeks before she was assassinated in Berlin. I had a long talk with her. And no, I, I talked with her in, in Berlin. She was assassinated in, in, in Paris. And uh, she also described her uh, struggle in 1990s with the movement about Kurdish women. Uh, later time, Öcalan, I don't know, probably prison condition, he was becoming also struggle against another authority, which is state, under the, another order, which is state. Then he, he changed his view, and he become more uh, put gender uh, one of his main aim is just actually one of his book is just coming out soon. Probably Plato Press is going to publish in coming months, which he described part of that book, 2017, that book is coming. He, in fact, he said, freedom and equality cannot be released without the achievement of gender equality. The most permanent and comprehensive component of democratization is women's freedom. Of course, Kurdish woman has changed from that shift to present shift, and I will leave from here and leave it to how the Kurdish women and societies actually approach to understand and react this kind of uh, developments from our own interviews, and Nadia will conclude it. Thank you. So, um, well, I think you know what we say in the paper is that uh, by the time that Öcalan, uh, you know, was imprisoned and started to write. 
he was or he must have already been influenced by um, Kurdish women sort of challenging uh, the Kurdish political movement and he must have been influenced by Kurdish women criticizing the patriarchal nature of the movement. Um, so, you know, we think that, uh, as we argue in the paper, that it's more of a dialectical relationship and that in the context of his ideological shift away from the sort of initial Marxist-Leninist uh, um, nationalism to, uh, you know, what has been coined uh, sort of democratic confederalism uh, with uh, gender-based equality at the center uh, that, you know, this obviously, you know, lots of people have already commented on us. It's not our project to look at the sort of uh, philosophical, ideological underpinnings of the shift, but the point that we are sort of trying to make in the paper that um, there was already something happening with respect to women actually agitating, mobilizing, and then once uh, the ideology changed once the sort of prison writings came out. Um, it is not just automatically that then the movement changed, but as uh, we found out from the various women's rights activists we interviewed, at every single step it was a struggle for women. Um, even at the point when there was a decision made that there would be a co-chairing system in terms of all leadership positions, so co-chairing in terms of any kind of political position that there would be a man and a woman, there was lots of resistance by men in the movement who'd say, well, society is not ready for it, for example, you know. Um, and so uh, it became very clear to us that uh, the women that we interviewed were very conscious that, you know, they had to uh, fight for every uh, little gain. And But at the same time, it helped, of course, that you had the, you know, leader of the political movement actually embracing and um, emphasizing the significance of gender-based equality and justice. And so one of the things that uh, we think and argue in the paper is that when um, Kurdish uh, women might say the same thing in terms of referring to Achalan's writing, but that the political experience behind it is very different. So, you know, the older let's say, older feminist activist, or for instance, the co-mayor of Diyarbakar, Gutan Kishanak, when she speaks about it and she refers to Erchelan's writing, this is based on decades of struggle. But if, let's say, a young woman who just sort of joined uh, the militia, who joined from a village, when she speaks about Erchelan's writing, then we think that's probably more a matter of her um, you know, having been sort of more indoctrinated, that it's not based on, you know, her own experience, but it's on her being, uh, yeah, well, I guess sort of spoon-fed. I mean, we can have that, you know, conversation. But the point being that one of the criticisms we've heard from many people who are sort of critical of the Kurdish women's movement is, or oh, they're just following Achalan's writing. And what we are saying is, no, they're not just following Achalan's writing, especially those, you know, who have, have a long history of women's rights activism. Uh, they have been using Achalan's writings to convince men and to, you know, make their points, but they that they had to, you know, um, 
fight at every corner. Um, you know, we're making it clear that we have, in our work so far, very much focused on the political elite. Uh, so these are people who are, in some some ways, um, towing the party line. Uh, we are aware that when you speak to people outside of the Kurdish uh, sort of political and legal movement, you find that not there's not a general buy-in in terms of the shift away from nationalism. Uh, you know, we'd argue that, uh, especially given the continuous brutal crackdown on Kurds in Turkey, that there would be uh, still a strong sentiment um, asking for an independent Kurdish state. Um, and also in terms of uh, gender norms and uh, gender relations, clearly uh, there are still uh, prevailing conservative gender norms and relations. But, I mean, personally, I have now looked at women's movements, you know, in Iraq, in Egypt, Palestine, uh, Jordan, comparatively, and Lebanon to some, expect, uh, to some uh, extent. And I have to say, I have not felt as inspired uh, as I felt with the other movements, seeing what um, Kurdish women have achieved in a context that is very uh, difficult. I know that more has been written in the context of northern Syria and Rojava, but of course, uh, you know, the, the actual sort of social experiment and the kind of actually translating the ideas into society uh, has gone uh, much further ahead given the context. But, uh, you know, we, in our view, I mean, we, have, we haven't had a chance to do that research, but, um, you know, as someone who has looked into the impact of militarization and militarism, we are a bit worried about the impact of militarization and militarism long term in terms of gender norms and relations. And of course the sad thing is that all the most of the people that we are quoting in the paper and that we have researched are currently in prison. So, um, you know, um, it is quite um, difficult to um, you know, speak about this knowing that, uh, you know, all the people who are actually have been so devoted to really putting gender-based equality at the center uh, are being persecuted by the state. I think I've taken a lot of time and we're going to stop here. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, both of you. <laughs> okay, and so before we get to the Q&A, we're lucky to have uh, Dr. Zainab Kaya with us, who's going to act as a discussant. Do you want to speak for about 10 minutes? Is that right? Yeah. Great. And uh, she is a research fellow at the Middle East Center. She's also a research officer at the LSE Center for Women, uh, Peace and Security. And she's worked, uh, done significant work on, on and, and especially currently on gender displacement with special reference to Iraq. She has a strong interest and research track record in Kurdish and Turkish politics. She has a PhD in international relations from LSE. And she's... Um, uh, uh, soon to um, uh, submit uh, for publication uh, a book called Mapping Kurdistan, Self-Determination, Territoriality and uh, the Quest for Statehood. So uh, a very appropriate discussant and uh, thank you for coming and let's uh, welcome her. Thanks for the welcome, John. Um, I won't take too much time. Uh, I just have a couple of points, but first, thanks writing a paper on this. As you said, there's a big gap uh, on this topic and there's a big gap in research. And I know uh, Southeast Turkey and Northern Syria are difficult contexts to undertake research, so thank you for, uh, for, for doing this and giving us very interesting insights. Uh, I mean, I, I, was, 
I, I totally buy into the argument, to be honest with you, especially the dialectic relationship between Ocalan's ideology and the more um, but bottom-up, maybe, if, if it's the right word, uh, women's push for more gender equality. And that somehow, uh, I don't know through which mechanism, uh, this push was taken on board. Uh, but, you know, it's difficult to identify. We do, you can't really go and talk to Ocalan, obviously, so to see how much he has been influenced by this. And that. So I think that's a very, really interesting question, and I agree with you that it's not just, just the ideology. Um, also, uh, what I find really fascinating in the pr uh, paper is the is, it's more you develop it more subtly compared to other points in the paper, but the link between uh, the transformation of the PKK's ideology into a more radical ideology that defies nation state and that uh, brings in other uh, other elements of uh, gender equality, environmentalism, so on and so forth, and how in this process. Uh, uh, how gender equality fits into that, pro into that process. So is it a change, a radical transformation uh, in the general outlook of the PKK that led to this, or is the gender equality, push for gender equality led to this? So that, that's also linked to the previous point. They are very interesting questions, and I think there is a lot of, you know, uh, discussion that we can, we can have on that. Just some uh, tentative points about, uh, about the paper, some of the aspects that I thought that raised some questions in my, in my head. Um, so as I said, I agree with the dialectical relationship, but I felt like the treatment of Öcalan's ideology in the paper, um, and I know you don't have enough space to, to elaborate on, on Öcalan's ideology, but the evolution of his thinking is more um, complicated than as presented in the paper. Uh, and I thought his uh, views about women um, and how that change could be better situated into his views about individual emancipation, what he thinks about the transformation of the Kurdish society from a more patriarchal tribal society into a more uh, you know, liberalized society. So I think his views about women is situated in these other, in, you know, his views about the individual and his views about society. Uh, and I think we should read his opinions about women, whether they are weak, uh, they are weak or whether they are strong um, actors, uh, you know, in the context of those, of those. And obviously his views about individual emancipation and so on and so forth has also evolved. So it's, there's a whole, I know, it's, you know, it's not the point of this paper. It's not, you know, the, the, you are making another point, but I think the treatment of his ideology to me was a little bit uh, less convincing. Um, the other, um, um, yeah, the other point is, I, 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 you know, um, PKK and HDP relationship. So uh, you uh, elaborate on Ejolan's ideology and PKK and include, inclusion of women into, into PKK, etc., on and so forth. But your main uh, research base is the HDP and the political party. Uh, and I think that's fine. Uh, but, but, you know, for those who don't know less about the HDP and PKK relationship, it would be you know, important to elaborate on what's the nature of the relationship, to what extent HDP has been influenced by PKK's ideology. Is there anything distinct in HDP's ideology than PKK? Or what, what do they say? What's their ideology uh, and their views about gender? So I think, I think that might be, for the benefit of the reader, that might be useful to add. Um, 
Hey, I was going to, you already said that they, I thought the recipients of the interviews were mainly political elite. Uh, and maybe, you know, in time, when I read, the, you know, look at the title of the paper, it's about political movement, and I, sorry, the Kurdish women's movement, and of course political participation and equality in political participation is part of that. But I think your paper seems to be drawing on that dimension more so than the general women's movement uh, in, among the Kurdish society. So maybe there's kind of a bit of a tension there, I thought, might be. You know, it's not a problem, I guess, but, you know, it, it would be good to elaborate on that, I thought. And, uh, and just finally, um, AKP's, you know, you draw, especially in the introduction, you draw on a lot on uh, AKP's authoritarian policies and, and so on and so forth. And I think that's a really important point. But I wanted to know more about, is there a link between Kurdish women's increasing push for gender equality and AKP's treatment of women. If, if you're drawing on that quite a lot, I thought there would be something about that connection, but the rest of the paper didn't go back to it. So I was wondering whether there is any... I, I, I know you're referring to it in the context of how secular governments and Islamist governments have treated women, in, uh, treated women or... Uh, perceived women's role in society in a way. So you contextualize AKP in that context. I understand that. But you're mainly drawing on AKP's current policies. I know it's the current policies, but still it would be. And, uh, and the timing, of course, you know, the, um, if the transformation of Ujalan's ideology in 1990s, I, I, you know, I agree with you. So in terms of I was thinking, uh, you know, the paper was in, in a way made me really you know, I wanted to, re you know, think about it more and then, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we will have discussions about different aspects of it. There is a lot of uh, me to discuss um, what was happening in the 1990s, you know, um, that kind of led to that transformation in the PKK, in the Turkish political context. Um, again, for the benefit of the reader for, you know, because you're treating this issue in the context of Turkey. So what was happening in that context? So, but, but these are, as I said, minor issues that, you know, they don't take away from the strength of the paper about, you know, I think it's a really uh, strong point, you know, about how uh, the, the general perception is that because of Öcalan's ideology, there is this push for women's equality, and it's all about, and some people think that this is instrumentalized uh, there is this bit of PKK's authoritarian structure, so that's what Jalan says, and everyone follows it. But it's not as simple as that. And I'm, I mainly look at gender and women's issues um, in the context of Iraqi Kurdistan, and I agree with you. Compared to that, you know, the I think gender's uh, gender rights and women's rights agenda is more instrumentalized in the context of Iraq than than in the context of PKK. So, um, and I will I will finish with that. I'm not sure I made up. 10 minutes, but I guess... Not quite, but that's okay. Decision okay. always a virtue. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. okay. So there's several issues being raised. Now, uh, Latif and Nadia, you have the right to respond directly if you wish. Do you want to start? Or? Yes, I can yeah. just actually... Mm. <coughs> 
of course, the, the space of the paper, you know, to be limited between 5,000 and 7,000 always creates some limitation, and you need to focus some dimension. You leave out some other dimensions. You, don't, you cannot just go into detail of most of parts, and it was one of the, uh, our dilemmas. And probably this paper was, it was just written, actually, for the LSE purposes, and it, it hasn't published in any other places. And it might be later time the the larger version of that paper the most uh, that that the title of that paper should be can be written or uh, different published different places and it's our mind the the relationship between http and pkk ideology the http was created for the environment which was environment that was suitable for http when the 2012, end of 2012, 2013, when there was peace process, and the BDP, which had a strong connection to the Kurdish party, with the PKK, wasn't the party can go to make peace with the Turkey. Sorry, can you just say what the BTP is? BDP is the, the party which is still exists, the mm -hmm. Kurdish party, more Kurdish-dominated party, but it, that already it was there. When the peace process started 2013, the BTP with a very strong connection with the PKK and local Kurdish movement mm -hmm. wasn't seen a right party by Öcalan and also Turkish part, uh, Turkish side to negotiate. And HTP was Kurdish-led, but actually the party which focused that during that time and still today, the peace process, and also not just organized in Kurdish area, the all around the Turkey as well. The HTP was also including uh, different group parties as well. It wasn't just Kurdish that party. It's coalition of many different groups. The HTP was the party which today, for example, is not the environment of HTP. For this, they cannot do anything else. As there is a many member of the HTP that are in prison. HTP, as, as I said, it was specially created for the special purposes, and that um, that when that. Environment end of 2000, end of 2015, uh, the actually HTP roles also finished as well. And now we are more uh, into into uh, ultra nationalism in both sides. And for that reason, HTP actually criticized by Turkish sides, but also harshly criticized by Kurdish side as well, because many people from local auto. Uh, Area, even in diaspora, when I talk with people, when we talk, they actually criticize HTP's soft actions, not doing properly for Kurdish rights. And the, we have a person interview said, if Turkey said continue like this, why do I have to make peace with them? And uh, of course, during the peace process, HTP has met with PKK leadership for long times. They traveled Kandil several times. And they are not, we cannot totally say that they act independently about PKK ideology. There is, a, there is still connection uh, between HTP and uh, PKK. And about political elite, I can just say that, uh, yes, we have, you know, part of our diaspora work, and also in Turkey as well, we have met and talked with the Turkish feminists, and uh, some other uh, women rights organizations representative as well. It's, it wasn't just the people who part of the political elite, but some article is just coming out uh, from the, we limited with the political elites. 
but the large perspective we also talk with some other people as well and uh, I think I kept uh, yeah I just will leave here and leave it Nadia to respond to some other words. You leave me the AKP? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to say something about the treatment of uh, Erdogan's ideology, which, of course, uh, you're absolutely right. But uh, as you know, Latif said, we had very limited um, space. But I have to say that I uh, was very, very surprised when uh, Latif presented me with some of the uh, findings. So I uh, personally, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in Erdogan's writings, but the writings that I know are the more recent post-1999 writings, you know, referred to as his prison writings. Um, in fact, I had agreed and I did write a foreword to the latest book that's coming out, which is a collection of his writings uh, that are about to be published by Pluto Press. So I was familiar with the kind of more recent thinking. So I have to say I was quite taken aback when I saw some of the older uh, writings. Uh, and clearly, as you rightly point out, I mean, the, the views on women are part of a, a, a whole ideological package. You know, it, uh, you know he was uh, very much sort of um, Marxist, Leninist, nationalist, and um, the views on, as you say, the individual emancipation shifted radically. But still, I mean, for me, I um, thought, okay, well, you know, this now, I mean, I have to also sort of reconsider in terms of, uh, you know, someone who was so negative about women, you know, either can interpret it as, wow, he's seen the light, you know, um, and, and clearly, uh, again, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's very complex. It's, you know, in terms of the kinds of readings, the kinds of um, uh, ideologies and ideas that he's been engaging with and, and looking at while he's been in prison. But I guess I don't want to, again, I, you know, want to come back to the point that, you know, we are sort of stressing the paper that he must have also been influenced by sort of women, women pushing back. But yes, it is, uh, it's quite complex and, um, you know, a lot should be and has been also written about sort of the shift to democratic confederalism and the, the role of women in, in that. Um, I have to say that in terms of the relationship between PKK and HDP, I mean, I think I don't want to add anything to what Latif said on that, but just to say that I'm also still sort of puzzled by it. I mean, I often ask, I don't quite, um, I think it's when I ask people, there is often some ambiguity. You know, it's, it's not quite clear, and people are sort of a bit cagey in terms of, you know, w what is the relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, with respect to the AKP's authoritarian poli policies, I, I would like to refer you to uh, an article that Denise Cagnotti recently published, and I think she looked... Uh, uh, in her eloquent and super analytical ways, she looked precisely at the way how the AKP's gender regime has changed over time. Um, I think it's a very interesting question whether, I mean, I understand your question to be, well, because it's so central for the Kurdish political movement, is that some, somehow kind of a reaction, you know? Yeah, I mean, Maybe. I don't, I mean, we can only speculate, uh, but, you know, when you look uh, comparatively in the region and you look at the Islamist and conservative authoritarian leaders, 
they all have very conservative gender ideologies, even if they don't have the Kurdish political movement there. So it might have contributed, it might become the symbolic thing, as it often is, you know. Uh, but I would think that, um, you know, there are other reasons as well. So uh, thank you for that. We can move on to the, the Q&A. It's perhaps a bit more than a Q&A. We have an hour, um, and so we have a bit more time to develop a discussion. So feel free to make a contribution. Um, obviously, we'll have to keep it brief, because each individual contribution, because there's quite a lot of us. Um, but there is a microphone, and so please can we use it, because it helps the quality of the podcast. But yes, there's a lot of issues, and so I'm looking forward to the discussion. And um, so feel free to jump in. There's no. There's no nobody has read the paper. Uh, <laughs> okay, we have somebody over here at the front. If you say, you're welcome to say who you are uh, and what your institutional affiliation <laughs> is. Um, hi, I'm Sapin. I'm a master's student here. Um, one of the speakers alluded to the fact that minorities within the Kurdish uh, regional authorities in Syria and Iraq had a, a worse experience. Um, compared to ethnically Kurdish women. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, what was meant by that. And uh, secondly, uh, to elaborate on the connections between minority rights and women's rights. Do they stem from the same uh, ideological foundation um, in terms of, you know, uh, is the desire for women's equality stemming from the same political philosophy that that mandates um, religious and social equality for minorities? Um, and that's specifically with reference to the the uh, Rojava constitution that was published in March last year. Thank you. Yes, yes. Let's take a few, a few questions uh, because there's bound to be... A, a <coughs> I suppose it's a question just to open up the floor to those who haven't read the paper, like myself. I didn't even see it circulated, sorry. Uh, but I was also interested in the larger research question you posed. What does peace mean So for these activists, especially in the context of this four-tier um, the Turkish state, Turkish feminist women in Turkey, patriarchal society, and the Kurdish movement itself. What can peace mean in such a context for these activists? What, what did you find? Okay. Thank you. Um, so, um, in the essay and also today, um, you talk about the relationship between Turkish feminists and um, Kurdish feminists and the sort of patronizing attitudes and lack of sort of intersectionality in the sort of Turkish feminist perspective. And um, I wondered which particular Turkish feminist movements you were speaking about and um, how, what you could comment about sort of uh, Turkish leftism sort of before 1980 military coup and the relationship between uh, uh, Kurdish movement and um, Turkish leftist movement in terms of also the relationship between um, sort of communist Turkish feminists and also uh, Kurdish um, activists as well. So is that, sorry, if, I don't know if that's clear. But, um, yeah. Did you get the time period for that question? Approximately. Right, okay, great. Thank you. Um, shall we have one more, perhaps? 
political response. Yeah. All right. So if not, minority rights, question of peace, and the question of Turkish feminism. Shall I have a All on the table. <coughs> okay. I'm not quite sure that I got uh, the point about the KRG, um, but I mean I've done previous work um, on the Kurdish women's movement in southern Kurdistan or northern Iraq. Um, and what I found in that context is that um, women's issues and gender-based equality were quite instrumentalized by the Kurdish regional government, which positioned itself um, in contrast to the central Iraqi government, which is you know, much more conservative, um, Islamist, and um, in the context of, I think, um, sort of constructing itself as more progressive, more democratic, more abiding by human rights. And certainly when it comes to Kurdish women's rights activists in um, southern Kurdistan uh, trying to get funding from Western institutions, I felt that there was quite a bit of instrumentalizing of uh, women's issues going on and that the, there was a big gap between the rhetoric around women's rights and gender-based equality and then the practice around that. Now, obviously, if you sort of compare what's happening in, um, in the Kurdish region of Iraq with the rest of Iraq, central and southern Iraq, clearly, you know, the situation has been much, much better. And, um, but when you compare it to, you know, the Kurdish women's movement, either in Turkey or in northern Syria, I would, I would say it's not the same movement. I mean, there are worlds between them. I mean, for me, uh, when I started to learn about, you know, the Kurdish women's movement in Turkey, after I had studied the Kurdish women's movement in, um, in Iraq, I, thought, I felt, well, you know, we cannot speak just about the Kurdish women's movement if it was one thing. I mean, they're totally different um, movements. Um, Yes, I mean, certainly uh, when I uh, read the more recent um, prison writings by Öcalan in preparation for me writing the foreword, it was very clear that Öcalan makes the connections between uh, minority rights and women's rights and sort of looks at them intersectionally. And, um, you know, the, the point being that um, you have marginalized people and women have been marginalized historically and so have religious and ethnic minorities and that, you know, as part of this project to really create radical democracy, what I find appealing about this ideology is that, you know, much of the sort of um, radical democratic horizontal um, sort of movements end up majoritarian and there is a danger of populism without actually adhering to principles of democracy. And that's what I found different uh, in the ideology of democratic confederalism, that it's not only about horizontal participation, it's not only about everyone being involved, but it's crucially also very much about safeguarding certain democratic rights rights of equality, rights, you know, social principles of equality and principles of social justice. Um, now, in terms of what does peace mean, um, I mean, uh, Latif has a lot to say about that because he's done quite a bit of work on it, but, I mean, what was, just from a feminist perspective, what was so clear and uh, no, what was so interesting for me was that, um, okay, so if we 
want to conceptualize peace, we need to conceptualize conflict. You know, what is it that, you know, we are sort of trying to change? And obviously we know as feminists that, you know, peace does not mean the cessation of armed conflict. Um, but to hear, you know, from Kurdish uh, women activists that our conflict is not just with the Turkish state, but it's also with our Kurdish men, that was very moving and almost shocking, you know, in a context where you actually have the state brutally cracking down on, you know, Kurdish communities. You know, for someone to say that, I thought, oh, wow, this is so radical. Um, so, you know, and, and then, you know, peace is very much not just the peace with the state, but peace is very much um, not having gender-based violence, uh, you know, having being able to uh, rethink what it means to be a ideal man and ideal woman. Uh, it is very gendered. Yeah. Um, and finally, uh, I have to say, I'm not an expert in the history of the Turkish feminist movement, but um, I maybe uh, I would maybe slightly. I don't think we we want to say, and we certainly didn't say in the paper that the contemporary Turkish feminist movement is not intersectional. I mean, one of the things that I think it's amazing about uh, many, especially the young generation of Turkish feminists, is that they're really quite different from the older generation of Turkish feminists who, uh, in their sort of Kemalist, I mean, even those who actually were critical of Kemalism were often quite patronizing towards Kurdish women. And I uh, do think that there is a big shift in terms of the new generation and I felt, I mean, when I, a few years ago, I participated, actually tomorrow is International Women's Day, and I think three years ago I participated in an International Women's Day parade in Istanbul, and um, I was really flabbergasted by the number of young Turkish women shouting Kurdish slogans, and, you know, the, the fact that that was so much part of the, you know, the, the feminist movement. So, um, Yes, I think that's all I can say about this. <coughs> Thank you. Just I would like to add a few things. The first question uh, about the piece. Uh, we have actually written articles uh, going to publish soon and just focusing the piece itself. Uh, I would like to just share one anecdote from the actually interview out of outcome from Sakina Johnson's. And she said, when I was a young girl, I've, I was facing the brutalism of the, my uh, father, a male member at, the, at home, and my mom and uh, female members of the household, we were facing that one. Then later time, when I went to school, I, faced, I saw the brutalism of the state at the school and uh, start uh, recognizing how state actually also close to my, my father's mind at home. Then she said, when I went to mountains, the first it was escaping for her and freedom for her to be part of the movement to fight for the uh, the Kurdish uh, 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 national rights, also Kurdish women's rights, because she said one of the main dimension her, for her to join the armed struggle was the, for the, her as a woman, as a gender for uh, freedom. But she said sim similar things. She very strangely and ironically faced similar things from her male comrades. The, the, the one who criticized state perspective against Kurdish minorities, but as a way also used similar oppression against their own, you know, the half of the society's agenda. 
And it was, of course, struggle. When you do peace, you have to have the peace with these different dimensions. And the one thing was the biggest mistakes, and actually which I call, which wasn't peace process the last uh, two years, it was just try to, the monopoly of power between two power games, between the AKP and PKK. And all others were uh, narrowed down and you know, struggled between. All Turkish side also, they weren't included as well, not just Kurdish side, but many Turkish side power groups, they weren't part of that peace process. The peace process, if you want to have successful peace process, you need to have not just political level, also societal level, have a peace process in a, you know, the whole different branches. And uh, the relationship between Turkish feminist and also uh, Kurdish women's movement, I think this is also a very interesting example to study. A group of women who has been seen the second class for long times, but not just states, but also the similar gender group to Turkish feminist group for a long time, who has seen like a pity group, has transformed these class dimensions from underdog, underdeveloped, you know, group become powerful, dominant group, which is Kurdish women. Now they're actually part of since 2014, especially from political level, they has been not just co-chairing from the political leadership, from like, man, the like council level, mayor level, they are also leading as a uh, co-chairing, but not just this is symbolic co-chairing, they are actually implementing the rules and decisions. The first time uh, Kishanak actually told us, he said, first time in Turkish history, history, women start talking about the defense budget, financial issues, the arm issues, not just with family matters, because all family matters was left for women, a few MPs, but all other things was dealt for a long time by male. And this example was taken by other Turkish parties, like by CHPs, by AKPs. They start actually looking up to HTP uh, and Kurdish rumors. They start learning and actually copying. And this was also uh, explained to, uh, uh, you know, told us by the, one of the uh, leading Turkish feminists who has been uh, researcher and uh, uh, for a long time. She, she said, now we need to learn many things from Kurdish women, what they do in Diyarbakir and Mardins. Of course, especially 70s and 80s, many uh, Kurdish uh, women, they have learned from the feminist, uh, leftist feminist movement, and they admit that they have learned something from them. But this, when it comes to national struggle especially, Turkish different, doesn't matter which kind of, which opinion you come from, they easily sidelined with the state perspective and left out Kurdish uh, uh, women. And for this, there was, as a way, learning process between them, but there wasn't strong connections until very recent years. Now, yes, there are some connections, but still, there is, we cannot claim any strong connection between Islamist feminists, uh, Islamist women, which is that it's not very active now, it's passively supporting the ongoing uh, process, and also, recent dimension, many Kemalist women movements, still they are sidelined with the state as well. Can I just add sure. something? 
because from my own experience as a, a university student in Ankara for like nine, eight years, I was part of feminist organizations and LGBT organizations in Ankara. And, um, and as a student, you know, I didn't know much about it. And then I was sometimes hearing these conversations with, with, uh, among the managerial teams or multiple organizations. So we, you know, they were organizing events in the southeast Turkey, in eastern Turkey. Uh, and their perspective, as far as I remember, was quite a developmentalist perspective. Mm. You know, the area is underdeveloped. We need to do something about this. We need to, you know, go and uh, make the women, you know, produce some handcraft and then bring and sell them and then raise some money and that sort of thing. There was more like sensible suggestions about that as well. And then a couple of years later, um, I heard conversations about how are we going to deal with this because the women in the eastern Turkey are telling us that, you know, you're not in a position to teach us because you don't even know what we are going through or you don't really understand our issues. You are coming with the state mentality. So I, I, that was a really interesting experience, a hands-on experience for me. And these organizations, obviously, I, I, there, there were some connections with, you know, some meetings or uh, Kurdish feminist organizations. There, there were many, but some Kurdish activists would join our events, but that was it. Uh, it was the feminist scene was mainly dominated by uh, liberal, um, you know, more well-off uh, sections of the of the Turkish Turkish society. So I, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. There was a, like an interesting dynamic going on in 1980s, 19, 1980s, 1990s, and then it's interesting that mm -hmm. the feminist organizations in Western Turkey um, go and make an effort to learn from from women in the East, so that's a very interesting process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you for the nuanced presentation. Uh, I have two points, actually. Uh, one of them in the paper, although I understand the limited space of the paper, I felt like the narrative about the traditional Kurdish society was a bit monolithic and a bit simplistic, as I do think that there are many differences in terms of uh, human agency in Kurdish society, especially when it comes to nomadic, semi-nomadic uh, uh, structure of the Kurdish society. Um, and tribalism is, of course, is one of the reasons that uh, caused a lot of problems in Kurdish society. But at the same time, I do think that uh, tribalism and nomadism affected the Kurdish struggle, especially in terms of uh, Kurdish people's participation in, in resistance. Uh, so I wonder the role of women. Based on my observation, I do think that actually those who have nomadic background are more liberated. Um, the second point is uh, I'm wondering whether there is the role of displacement of Kurdish people in 1990s, which was, I think, about 4 million people, uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of the Kurdish women movement liberation. Uh, as I do think that uh, after the displacement, women have participated in labor in the cities, uh, although not very qualified and uh, 
but but still i do think that uh, this provided uh, more power to women to claim their ag agency more than Ojalan's writing as a side note i do think that among Kurdish women, there isn't many people who read Ojalan, but they cite it, of course, a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thank you also for your presentation. Um, I was wondering, maybe drawing a little bit on the title of your paper, which is putting gender at the center. Like, I've, when I read it, I read there a process of how this actually happens, how you actually put gender at the center and I was wondering if you could give us um, you gave a lot of examples of achievements of Kurdish women's movement in your paper the co-chairing system uh, you also mentioned at some point that women um, are in charge of choosing female candidates and you say it uh, it was a battle and they won it so I was wondering how what's the process of it whether you could have maybe Talk about it during our interviews. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, th thank you uh, very much for uh, the paper and the presentation. I'll just follow the last question. Um, at the time you interviewed uh, Kurdish women, it was uh, what's called peace process. There was a sort of opening uh, for politics, political action. And now we, ha we have a, a completely different situation. And I wonder whether the, the, the questions you asked or the narratives of the in the answers gives us any clue about how women will fight back against this type of um, oppression. Uh, because it's not always smooth smelling, either political struggle in general or women's struggle in general, and that may be an interesting issue to discuss, maybe, um, to some extent here. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, plus question. All right. Okay. So, yeah, can I, do you mind if I just underline that there's a second last question about can you tell us more about the, the specific instantiations of feminist politics? Because it's not, I mean, this speaker said there were many examples. There, there were one or two examples of focusing on this issue of who participates and in what way. But there wasn't, I, I wanted more on the, the substance of the feminism. What is it? I mean, there's some philosophical writings, there's some... Um, political processual arrangements, but are there policies? Are there, are there more about the battles, more about the processes? So just to underline uh, that question, I wanted to know a lot more. I mean, the paper's called The Feminist Turn. It's about putting gender at the center. I wanted to know more about the substance of, of the feminism that we're, that, we're, that we're talking about. But just to, just to add, add, add a piece from, from there. Thanks. I just want to... Uh, yeah, touch a few questions and then leave uh, to Nadia. The first one, Mehmet's uh, point about monolithic of uh, Kurdish society. Uh, actually, my previous research and also our ongoing research, we already and already, I put it, uh, and how diverse curse are, and it cannot be described one curse. Even just within Turkey, 
if you leave it Iraqis Kurdistan or Rojava and Iranian Kurds out, even just if you somebody focus Turkey, even just Turkey, Kurds from Turkey in diaspora even cannot be described in one group. Because I study, I look at the diaspora Kurds in London, and but there was a large Kurdish Alevis, there was large Kurdish group who part of the Kurdish political movement. There was some also Islamic Islamist Kurds as well. And that's the reason I call my work as a pluralism, because the, the societies uh, actually uh, give title, not myself. Uh, from that perspective, tribism, when we look at the tribism, actually there are two types of tribism in, in, within the Kurdish societies. One is there is a traditional tribism has been ongoing for centuries, which has been amazing contribution of Kurdish culture, language, and customs, and they are the actually uh, carrier of Kurdish identities. They have contributed in that ways. But also there is another tribe, tribe who has been created from late to uh, like 19th century, and especially 1920 and 1930s with the hand of the states, which tribes are created, which dominate a Kurdish society with as an agent working the, for the state perspective and as a state ruling the state uh, policies there. They also cooperate with the states and use colonized like perspective, rule the society in slave conditions for a long time. And still today in some areas they are still active. In PKK's establishment we cannot also just say that or oh, they are totally against tribism. There was some tribal group, traditional tribal group, they supported PKK movement and there was a PKK, they were fighting with different tribes group as well. And you are totally right, 1990s displacement has, I think, affected Kurdish women uh, very radically, not just Kurdish women's movement, but whole Kurdish movement. And with also increasing of the middle class educations has put some other rights and I think that also pushed uh, Erdogan to change his idea because his 1980s, 70s idea most based off the rural ideas of Kurds. But later time, the, the population of Kurds in, in cities and urban Kurds become more. And if he didn't shift his idea, he could be outdated, the person. As a way not to up, out, be outdated as a leader, he actually outdated, you know, update himself as a way not, uh, necessity of the society. Uh, I can leave here. I just, uh, Mehmet, could you, sorry, Mehmet, could you repeat your question, the last one? It, is, it was about basically whether there is anything in, the, in your evidence, not necessarily in the paper, that gives some indication about... Uh, recent development about, about how Kurdish women will defend their gains, their, their achievements, in the face of oppression like we have today? We started this research uh, February 2015 and still ongoing research. I actually, most of our, our interview, we, we carry out interview when there was a huge clashes was going on in Sur. We actually faced that clashes as well. We also stuck there. We couldn't escape from that moment. We were there during that fight. And uh, it was also as a, of course, bad experience, but 
as a way we we face people when the people were struggling in sur same times but also two street ups people were enjoying sometimes their life wasn't different than jihangir you could have seen that that kind of differences uh, during the clashes and also some of our interviews we update as well like one of them gulten kishanak ailakat uh, like demirtash or frat anne these interviews we actually recently after uh, the middle of the 2016 we also reached them and uh, with new questions we ask about new developments as well as a way this ongoing research not just actually was yes started with the ambitions of the peace process but we end up with a dark situation but we also continue to have uh, more research and update interviews as well Well, I mean, following okay, so up on that. Just to say that the question about how to fight back is was left hanging there. Yes. Yeah. Come back yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the big question that we have now as well. Um, I mean, what what um, all you know, everyone we spoke to, not everyone, but, you know, the, the sense I got was that there was sort of a recognition that in other struggles, in other revolutionary struggles, uh, women lost out, you know, in a situation, particularly when there was acute conflict and then when the sort of emphasis shift. And I felt that um, there was a sort of, uh, certainly in terms of reflection, but also political experience, Uh, there was something, you know, very mature and thoughtful about this. But I have to say, I find it impossible to hypothesize how it's going to play out in the current context, which is so devastating, you know. I mean, I think it will make a difference if, you know, people, are they going to be in prison for two months or three months or three years or 30 years? I mean, that's going to have an impact of course and what is going to happen after the referendum and I have to say I as an anthropologist always feel very uncomfortable when these IR scholars tell you you know this is going to happen and I, I can't say this but I mean I appreciate your question that that's exactly the kind of you know we're asking ourselves you know what is how are they how are because the gains are actually now sort of disappearing because you know in the at local level at municipalities where you had you know some of the uh, really uh, this goes to John's questions you know it wasn't just about uh, at women and stir which I was used to in the Iraqi context when it comes to quota where you have a 25% quota but what does it mean in practice it means the wives sisters daughters Uh, you know, female relatives of male conservative politicians are in these um, power positions and in the Iraqi parliament it means that you have a woman seriously debating um, you know, how, f how much a uh, husband can beat his wife, it's okay as long as he doesn't leave any marks and that's part of the quota so I was actually very skeptical when I first heard about the quota sharing, I said okay yeah well it's like you put a woman and it's a sort of cosmetic thing and um, You know, what I, you know, found so inspiring that I felt it wasn't just a cosmetic thing. And also I felt it was really, we have this term in gender theory, intersectionality. That there was really a recognition that it's not only about men and women. It is also about, for instance, ethnic and religious minorities. So, you know, when we went to Mardin, um, the co-mayor of Mardin, uh, not only is she 27 years old, 
So there's also youth, because when you go to the Middle East, who is in positions of power? It's not just men, but it's all old men. So, you know, to have youth as well. And then um, also the issue of ethnic and religious minority. She's a Syrian. And I have to say that I have never seen a political, a feminist movement that is so intersectional in practice, that is intersectional meaning recognizing that the power inequalities based on the system of patriarchy, patriarchy meaning the rule of male elders, intersects with other power hierarchies, hierarchies of inequality. So that could be in, you know, of course, the most obvious one being class, very obviously. Uh, race, I mean, the whole term was introduced by black feminists in the U.S. who said, you know, it's these white Western uh, feminists who just speak about patriarchy, what, what about racism? Okay, but when you look at, um, you know, the Middle East, then we have to also include things like sectarianism. We have to look at imperialism. We, we have to look at the various neoliberal economics. We have to look at the way that different power configurations intersect. And I did feel that um, Kurdish feminists were actually uh, very aware of these intersecting power configurations. Um, unlike, for instance, the Kurdish feminists I'd come across in Iraqi Kurdistan who were very happy to take money from the, Republican, inter the International Republican Institute or USEID and who were very happy to implement these um, empowerment programs, which means like training women to be women business women and women entrepreneurs and women leaders. This was a very, very different kind of understanding of um, uh, feminism. And, you know, someone like uh, Gultan Kishanak telling us, well, you know, when I go to the mosque and, um, you know, they look at me and they know that I'm the co-mayor and they say, okay, you're welcome because you're the co-mayor. I don't want to be welcomed because I'm the co-mayor. You know, I want women to be welcomed in the mosque. And I thought that was also very radical, not just in the context of the Middle East, but we know that everywhere, historically and cross-culturally, we have these, of course, women in power who then, you know, become fear that in order to get ahead, they have to be sort of more masculinist in the sort of traditional sense and use the elbows. And he was someone who actually refused to become a man like a man, you know, as you're supposed to be. So that, I thought, was really, uh, you know, quite uh, quite something. Um, now, in terms of the question about process, I think that's a really important question. We're not dealing with that in this paper, but we're dealing with that in the paper when we look at um, peace and conflict, because we actually uh, look, and also f the relation, no, actually, the paper and we, where we look at the relationship between feminism and nationalism, and, um, you know, there's, it's, it's multi-layered. So, you know, it's sort of initially, of course, women participating in armed conflict, starting to organize in terms of their own groups and branches, um, starting to, to challenge uh, male leadership. Uh, then, you know, one process, for example, when it comes to the co-chairing, um, again, Gulten Kishanek, who herself, you know, prior to now she's being a prison, but she had previously been in prison, I think, for 11 years or... And, you know, she was, she was tortured in the Abaka prison and, you know, really horrendous. But she told us, you know, the most challenging time in my life wasn't when I was imprisoned in the Abaka prison and tortured. It was when we're actually trying to implement the court sharing and the sort of quota for women and the kind of, 
you know, daily struggle with men and sort of, you know, fighting and, you know, uh, keep insisting. And uh, what she was describing was sort of a continuous, ongoing sort of struggle of, you know, arguing with men, uh, you know, threatening to sort of uh, withhold participation. Um, and, you know, this was going on, of course, at the same time as you would have uh, the, you know, women participating in armed struggles and also in uh, creating their own independent women's movements. Um, did I leave something out? I can just say something. Yeah. Can I add a comment? Uh, yes, but, well, actually, we, we, we have a question over here first uh, before yeah. you come in. Just so I can but add something. You can add yeah. something. Sorry, just to be very pedantic about the order. Just, uh, actually, we are not talking about a success story here. We are putting, we have come out with more questions than answers in the end. And still questions are relevant there, and probably more research is uh, needed. The, uh, when conflict increased, which Nadia also mentioned as well, and the before conflict, there was special branch within each mayor and local authorities in Kurdish uh, cities, and there was a huge number of people who were applying for uh, violence at home, and also the inequality in different workplaces, but now people are struggling for finding breads and shelters. When people are finding finding difficult to, you know, uh, answer the uh, the main uh, needs, then they sidelined about the or gender rights or violence or other things. And actually, with the increasing of conflict between different groups, also the increase of conflict within the family as well. The how the men also start uh, dominating at home again because there was many different uh, uh, practices of Kurdish mayors. If there was a violent at home, they were stopped uh, paying the husband the salary. They were paying that salary to women directly as a way of punishment or replacing men with the workplace with the woman as a way different punishment was in practice there. For example, there was not just, we are not talking about lo uh, political development or equality, in local level, in Diyarbakir, for example, they tried to open 20 spaces for uh, five, five women for, you know, creating that environment, the, the places where is seen as a male-dominated area, they try to break these uh, barriers. Also, bus drivers start becoming women as well in that area, but now all these kind of practices has been uh, damaged or actually stopped. Now, 88 out of 200, 102 uh, Kurdish mayors, the places where they are running mayors, are now taken by the states. The, the different places, offices, which was already pra in practice by Kurdish, the mayors who are in prison now, are closed down. There is not any funding for these kind of places. Of course, this will create some backlashes, will create some changes in societies. And uh, I think even though there are 30% of armed uh, movement guerrillas are made up from women, not just in Rojava and also PKK in Turkey as well, and there are 40% now is trying to equalize quota system in every places, but the ongoing conflict might damage all these rights. Okay, so we have a question. Okay. Um, 
I think what's very interesting about this talk is that it raises so many questions. And so I feel like I'm, I'm kind of confused and I hope I can pose my questions in an eloquent way. Uh, the first one, I think, Dr. Nadia, you, you kind of answered it uh, right now. Um, but, but my main question would be, you know, we look at the FLN and we look at the PLO and many liberation movements and we see women were always a part of it. But um, the moment somehow the liberation was kind of achieved, women were not, were moved backwards. And, and this was, you know, and you've said this in many of your articles, this was because it wasn't gendered. Liberation movements weren't gendered. And the PKK, we see that it, as you mentioned, it's very, like gender is very much a focus. So what are the context-specific factors that have led to the PKK being so uh, focused on gender? Because you say it's not Ocalan, and, you know, Ocalan was very much inspired by women previously, the Kurdish struggle, Kurdish woman struggle previously. Um, I, I don't know if you have an answer. You said it's because of, like, their experience and what they learned, but um, maybe if you could, could touch on that a bit more. And my second question as well is, sorry, can you guys... Uh, okay. And my second question is as well, like Dr. Zainab, uh, previously in one of your talks, you were, you mentioned how like there's always a focus on uh, how feminist um, the KRG is. And, you know, from your study, it showed that in reality, gender equality is also a problem uh, uh, socially in, in, in the KRG, just as much as perhaps it is in Baghdad. And... Um, this leads me to ask, you know, uh, on an anthropological level, when the social structures are examined um, and not the political ones, how equal or how um, gender-focused um, is the PKK in comparison to the KRG, at least? Okay. So what I will do is I'll have these two more questions that are waiting. Then we'll go to back to the panel. Okay. So if you... Thank you. My question is going to be actually part of... I mean lady asked part of my question so I'm gonna follow her mm -hmm. and underlining some uh, some points uh, I'm not a specialist in Kurdish women movement uh, but um, <clears throat> based on my ob observation I would like to say something uh, according to my ob observation Kurdish women liberalization liberation has been realized under war war conditions and it's very tough conditions and uh, based on these conditions the maybe the Kurdish patriarch accepted, recognized most of the uh, the, the, the willings of the Kurdish movement, women movement, uh, uh, I'm, I'm voluntary. I'm just skeptical about that. Because it is not an evolutionary process. It is a quite revolutionary process. And they, I don't think the society still accepted the the the, the, the Women liberation, liberation, and uh, as you said, that under war conditions, they okay. Once, one, <coughs> once they reached peace process, uh, achieved peace, uh, peace, and uh, purged the uh, the PKK movement, guerrilla uh, movement, and the war end. Once war ends, I'm just concerned about that. If the society is not uh, ready for that, they would. They would take all those rights back and push women down, and uh, and uh, I'm just concerned about that. What, what would you think about that? What would you say about that? Thank you. Thank you. And there's one more over here. Uh, Thank you. Uh, so I really appreciated uh, of your paper that you 
gave back agency to the um, to the PKK women and recognized their role in the process of transformation, which cannot only be Ojalans changing his mind. I was wondering if you uh, consider also the the role of the international dynamics in this uh, in this process. I mean the the process of transformation of the PKK happens in a in um in years in which the world, the, the old world is changing, the end of the Cold War, the old, uh, the, the left is reorganizing at global, um, at global level. And uh, do you see a connection between uh, this process and especially the changing role of the women in, in the PKK and these international changes? Thank you. Maybe in this room, just can we just squeeze in this one more before yes. Sandra, and then we'll go to the panel over here on the right. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, I think it's really important, as you mentioned at, your at the beginning, that the fight the Kurdish women had to go through within the PKK and within Kurdish society is recognized because, you know, obviously there's, it's un very underreported and, and under-discussed, the general Kurdish women's movement, but when it is, a lot of the time it's treated like you know, women were handed their liberation on a silver platter or something. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I think the, sh the, the sharp kind of change between Ojalan's thoughts or ideology, I think that's a bit problematic as well. Because it seems like, you know, well, from what I got from the discussion, it seems like, you know, it was first black, now it's white. But there is a lot of grey area. And I think also... Um, it is important, like kind of what Zeynep said, following over the, over to that, what was happening in Turkey at the time, firstly, before the founding of the PKK and even during, you know, during the, 60, uh, the 68 generation, they say, um, and even at its time, even though it did found itself as a Marxist-Leninist movement, it was still a lot more radical than most other movements around. You know, it was the PKK who said Kurdistan was a colony when the only talk, only talk in revolutionary circles at the time was that the only struggle is class struggle. And I think the, what I'm trying to say is I think rather than act, uh, treating the paradigm change of the PKK like it was a, you know, a drastic change, I think it would be more useful to approach it as a journey because the environment of the time of when it was, you know, at its group stage and then found in itself as a party, I, I would say it was necessary for it to take that journey um, and not necessarily analyze the PKK's ideology or history according to our times now. I think that's really important. Um, but also, I think I found it quite interesting that it was referred to some of the things Erjalan said about distrust in women because... Um, I mean, obviously, he did speak a lot about the analysis of the position of women in society, but, you know, I've never come across this, especially because in the PKK, the autonomous women's guerrilla units were formed, you know, in 92, 93, before he was captured. And, um, you know, the struggles um, within the PKK after the paradigm change, because sometimes it's treated like the paradigm change was happened happened for strategic reasons, you know, Erjalan was kind of like stuck, so he thought, oh, let me just um, incorporate women's liberation into our ideology, maybe it'll make it easier, but no, when the paradigm change happened, the PKK 
struggled a lot more at that time because a lot of its uh, cadres, a lot of its guerrillas actually left the movement because they couldn't um, accept that they weren't fighting for an independent Kurdistan anymore. So I think it's important to recognize or perhaps look into that even more, but at the same time, of course, really strongly recognize that the fight for women within Kurdish society, within the PKK, will never stop. And in a way, that's the beauty of it, that an environment to be able to fight for women has been created. And that's what Sakina Jansas, you know, said as well, many times that freedom is to be able to fight. And that was never possible for women. So the, the revolution or the struggle for women's liberation or gender liberation will never stop. And I think that's important to recognize that as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So we'll go back to the panel, and Zainab, you get to start first, and then we'll carry on. There are other things were added to my to what I wanted to say because of the questions, if it's okay. Good. Okay, so um, I don't know where to start with. So um, about the KRG and, and PKK, um, I agree with the differences that you are drawing on in the paper, but at the same time I see a lot of similarities between the Kurdish movements um, or Kurdish society in Turkey and, and in KRG. So I think it's important to differentiate between the two because PKK is a socialist, started off as a socialist, Leninist, Marxist, you know, whatever you call it, leftist organization, revolutionary, um, initially independent, independent and uh, radical. And, and then gradually transformed into an anti-nation state organization uh, and so on and so forth. So that's a really different political context for a women's organization to emerge to KRG where both or PUK and KDP are quite traditional, tribally based, uh, nation statist political parties. Plus, there is the context of international intervention in KRG. So the neoliberal money or the neoliberal policies and the money coming through those policies to the women's society, women's organizations, were not necessarily available in any way in Turkey, as much as it was available in KRG. Secondly, I think I agree with the whole, um, you know, the, the damage that neoliberal policies and that sort of money makes for women's organizations, but also I believe that based on my observations in KRG and talking to women's organizations, they also instrumentalize this money. Mm. They also have agency. So the, the fact that they are taking the money doesn't mean that they are necessarily at the behest of these. Sure. So, um, so I think that international context, that international intervention context, generated also the differences between the two uh, women's organizations. Um, in terms of societies, I see a lot of similarities. I'm from one. When I go to Erbil, I feel like I'm in one. <laughs> You know, it's not that different. Uh, the rules that gener you know, regulate the women's role in society, um, the, you know, the typical elite, educated, rich women, emancipated, you know, powerful, strong women, as opposed to very rural, very suppressed women. The same story in Turkey. Um, PKK's role, I think, you know, KDP, maybe to an extent PUK tried to do that, but KDP didn't necessarily try to change that tribal, uh, patriarchal structures that are embedded in Kurdish society. Not Kurdish society, actually, Eastern Turkish societies. Uh, it's not just a Kurdish issue or a Syrian issue. It's a regional issue, I think. Um, and 
what PKK did actually uh, to propose an alternative view. So when I was talking to some young girls in in Eastern Turkey uh, last year, um, and some of them were considering joining the PKK, and for them it's about getting away from the patriarchal, being being a slave to family, or getting away from patriarchal rules and joining the PKK. So PKK was is proposing it, you know, pro pro you know, providing a different alternative for for what they can do with their lives, whereas KDP or PUK doesn't necessarily don't necessarily provide that context. So there are these similarities, but I think rather than I agree with you that there is a bottom-up or there is a women's push, women's rights push for that, but I think the main differentiating factor here is the nature of political parties, PKK, and the differences between the two political parties and ideologies they are based on more so than this women's on the ground or rights. You know, they, they, Obviously, there are different organizations because Turkey and Iraq has different contexts which generated the different forms of women's organizations. I know it's an important factor, but I think the political, ideological context is more important than that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So, okay. Right. Um, well, I want to first say something about the idea of this whole emerging in the context of war and conflict. Um, yes, although, you know, one of the things that we found interesting that, you know, prior, that there was a period, and I think sort of the period starting from 2000, when the situation was calmer than in the 90s and certainly calmer than now, and which allowed for an emergence of more of a political, legal, branch of the Kurdish political movement that not only um, not only in terms of establishing political parties but also trying to actually translate the political principles in terms of municipali uh, municipalities, local politics and so on in a situation that was relatively more peaceful than what we see for instance in northern uh, Syria and what we see right now um, but, but clearly, you're right that when we think about the development of the PKK, that you know this is of course in the context of the Turkish-Kurdish conflict. And I have to say that one problem I have, and we haven't discussed that yet, and that also links a little bit to your question in terms of the gendered uh, movement. You know, if you compare it to the FLN or the PLO, um, <clears throat> is that um, that of the, the, the issue of sexuality. So. I feel uh, one of the things that's happening, and um, Latif already alluded a little bit to it in, when he sort of referred to Öcalan's uh, earlier writings, is that you have to become a sexless militant. So, you know, in terms of the, the fighting, um, yes, there is radical, the idea of, you know, radical equality, but how, what kind of men or women woman do you have to be in order to be, you know, equal, you have to be a sexless person, okay? So you're not supposed to engage in sex, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Um, and what I see is happening, therefore, is a kind of parallel universe. So you have <laughs> like a universe of uh, militants who are fighting, and there is sort of the idea 
you know, that's kind of radical equality and you're not, you know, sexual being. And then you have society out there, and society out there, for one reason or another, and if it's not for anything else, for reproductive purposes, is still engaging in sexuality, uh, aside from, you know, pleasure and desire. And so, you know, all the issues, the problematic issues around honor, you know, around, uh, you know, control of women's sexuality, control of women's mobility and dress code, um, are not being addressed unless you also address the issue of sexuality. And I think that is, that for me is uh, going forward is the problem, okay? Because I do, don't see that, uh, I mean, I totally understand why, uh, you know, um, of course people would say, oh, you are just a Western feminist being, you know, obsessed with sex. I mean, I know that, I mean, I have, you know, worked in Iraq, I've worked in Egypt. I know that, of course, the only way that families can let their daughters go to fight in the mountain and not feel that it's a problem is because there is this, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. of course, uh, the weight on the expectation that, uh, you know, they're not going to, you know, sleep around. I mean, I totally get this. But I'm just saying, looking forward... Um, I think that unless this is addressed, we come to some, you know, we, we are not going to address some of the profound problems that arise out of the control of women's sexuality. That's, you know, um, my view on this. Um, you know, why, it is, why is it that, uh, you know, the PKK as opposed to, and not just the PKK, I mean, also when you look at what's happening in, in Rojava, how come gender is so central there, um, well, I mean, I think partly um, the PKK, the, I mean, the Kurdish political movement is aware of the Eritrean fight, the Vietnamese fight, the PLO, the Algerian uh, fight. I mean, it's something they are very aware of. They have studied it, and they say we don't want to go down the same route. Now, of course, it's a bit of a chicken and egg question, and it links back to what, you know, Zeynep was saying. You know, it is, it is a dialectic process. I cannot also say, well, it's at this specific point uh, that either, you know, Öcalan or, you know, specific women's rights activists decided that it has to be this way. It's clearly happened over time. It clearly is part of a wider worldview and understanding that, you know, how do you conceptualize liberation? How do you conceptualize justice? And um, as I, you know, I, I still think it's a sort of, I, I mean, I don't actually, I, I don't want to dismiss the impact that Öcalan's writing had on the Kurdish political movement. And I certainly think that, you know, women's rights activists have been using this, uh, you know, to make a, a case. I think that there are some, you know, other problems. For instance, you know, Öcalan is making the uh, argument that Kurdish women have to produce this uh, new uh, knowledge, and, you know, he's speaking about genealogy, you know, the sort of idea of uh, woman-centric science, um, and the idea that, you know, in the past, uh, knowledge production has been very uh, male-centered, has been very Western-centric, and it's up to Kurdish women to now you know, develop this new paradigm that puts women at its center. And, I mean, I find this really problematic because it, um, I think it's an ethnic form of feminism that actually does not really recognize the fact that we have already critiqued uh, knowledge production that's androcentric and westocentric. I mean, we have done that 
from post-colonial, post-modern, post-structuralist, uh, you know, lots of different perspectives. And um, I would also say that, you know, feminism, there is not a thing as Western feminism. You know, there's so many different feminisms. And when I think about the way that, you know, post-colonial feminism, black feminism, transnational feminism is very much sort of based on the recognition that you have to look at patriarchy in relation to colonialism, in relation to imperialism, class, and so on. And so it's all there, and we can build on that. We don't have to reinvent the wheel and say, you know, it's, you know, the, the Kurdish woman at the center of the world and the paradigm. I mean, this is sort of a bit unfair, but I actually... But again, I, while I, as a sort of gender, professor of gender studies, have a problem with that academically, politically, I very much respect the way that Kurdish women use this as the way to, um, you know, sort of, uh, I think, uh, increase, I mean, in terms of, you know, how do they, how do they actually, the processes, I think one process is to use the term of genealogy to say, you know, we have to engage in our own knowledge production, we have to challenge the way that, you know, Kurdish men and the movement have, sort of constructed our history and so on. So I think it's a, it's a useful political tool, but I think academically it's very problematic. Just on that, can we push you? Because this question over here was about wider influences on the feminist turn, which could be rights discourses, could be... Oh, the international the one. Left. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, left. I missed that, and yes. Because yes. you're painting a picture yes. as if they really are very no, no, endogenous. No. Yes. And, and it comes yes. across... You, it's very, I mean, it feels like it's just the Kurds doing this, but yes. obviously radical yes. democracy, yes. democratic Yeah, 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 no, sorry. Uh, so, yes, I was, so just so to ask, what yes. are those influences? Yeah, well, uh, so, um, I mean, I think there are many, of course, clearly, it's not just existing in a vacuum. And, I mean, I did say that one of the influence is that, I mean, Kurds have done their homework and they have studied other revolutionary struggle and the failures, you know, very much. I mean, um, Latif was pointing to uh, the Palestinian women's movement very early on. Erchelan actually evoked the PLO to say, you know, like the PLO, we need to mobilize our women. So that's one aspect, the various, uh, you know, revolutionary movements and trying to actually avoid some of the mistakes. That's one. Um, then uh, several of the Kurdish women we interviewed mentioned that 19, from 1985 to 1995 was the UN decade for women. And so there were lots of um, events around that, and they actually said that they kind of uh, plugged into this. Um, and then I think also with respect to, um, you know, post-1999 is, of course, a period when um, Turkey was trying to become a member of the EU, and so I think there was influence also in terms of EU discourse on democracy and human rights, which um, and sort of an NGOization that happened, and that not only affected the Turkish feminist movement, but also the Kurdish feminist movement. Mm -hmm. but of course, and all the, I mean, you're right, of course, you are now you're, you, you're sort of want me to speak about the sort of, you know, other sort of social movements, and um, I mean, I, I, maybe you can say something about that. No, 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 that's Just a few points, I think, uh, 1990s, there was special separate Kurdish rumors branches, 1992-1996, but it wasn't actually for the, for the aim of increasing gender dimension of women's rights. It was the aim for the success of uh, national liberations. It was also as a message to 
to fathers, brothers, as a way your daughters are in safe hand. We even created separate armies, they are not even within men. And actually it was answering patriarchal society's needs, which is who was seeing their daughter's virginity more important than their daughter's alive or dead. That was the important shift, and uh, the message was to answer in the patriarchal society that till 1978, uh, actually, there wasn't much about women's movement, but it was more about national liberations. And for Öcalan, he emphasized Zilan, the Zilan who, uh, the guerrilla 1996, who, uh, uh, like a suicide bomb and killed many Turkish soldiers. And of course, herself also, she was blown up and uh, Zilan become important uh, uh, ideal figure for Kurdish women as an example. And when you uh, uh, look at Öcalan's writings, and Zilan is actually center of the writings, and the, the woman should be Zilan. The Zilan can be trusted. Zilan can be loved. That's the love. When you sacrifice yourself for nations, that's the love you need to reach. Uh, because honor, as we discussed, transfer from family to national level. But of course, later time, international dimension, you know, has been important in many ways important for Kurdish women. First of all, they have learned throughout the struggle with the, uh, you know, legal cases. With the, uh, because almost every house of Kurdish society has a, some legal case in European Court of Human Rights. And that process, they have learned the process. They learned that the gender dimension is so important because if you are fighting with a society which is so patriarchal, Society, for example, today's AKPs, and your investment of gender becoming uh, can get re nice received from the Western societies. But we cannot claim that all West totally is a move away from the gender, uh, you know, create gender equality. It's not possible because this country, 1991, the rape within family was legal in this country. Uh, Force marriage was legal till 2005. When we look at the societies today, even today at the European Parliament, somebody can stand up and say that women are less educated. And that person can be excluded from Kurdish society second days, but not excluded from European Parliament second days. We have gender-blind, sexist society everywhere. And Turkish society, there is a tendency of Turkish academics, Turkish <coughs> Leftists and Turkish uh, Islamists, they still say that actually Kurdish women need to be protected, but West part of Turkey actually suffering badly about patriarchal dimensions. And I don't know how much can be successful to create uh, transformation from that patriarchal environment. You know, if Kurds start continue to live in Turkey, the, the law will be there, the the authority will be there, the power will be there, constitution will be there. If this patriarchal struggles to continue within the state, they cannot do much changes. Of course, state need to be transformed as well. And also society need to be transformed as a way of that revolution things can be applicable. Otherwise, revolution can be set on, on corners, but cannot continue for a long time if society still continue. Be, you know, Patriarchal. 
All right. Very good. Thank you very much. So um, we have to draw this event to a close. Um, I'd just like to announce, uh, before we do so, the next uh, Middle East Centre event, which is Monday the 13th of March, which is Anissa Basiri-Tabrizi is speaking about Iran and the nuclear program. More information can be found on the website. The next event in this series, the Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa Research Network, is going to be Thomas Pire from the University of Edinburgh talking on the 2nd of May about Islamist uh, uh, movements in Syria and their changing fortunes. And the, only, and the other one to close off 2017 in this series is going to be Hugh Roberts uh, coming on the 30th of May. But um, so anyway, I thought that was a, an important discussion on a very important, very distinctive, interesting topic. And uh, so I'd like to thank you all very much for coming and for your questions and for your engagement. And uh, and to thank both speakers and the discussant very much uh, for sharing this paper with us. <laughs>